Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 6 Finale, Episode 22, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Let's get this show on the road. This is our last regular episode for season six, which I honestly cannot believe. Next week, we're going to be releasing our season six recap, which we got to record with our patrons and with our supporters. And then we're going to be taking our usual like two week break. Although, I mean, at this point, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know, everybody knows that we're going to have some special releases for you. So you're still going to be getting like your weekly dose of Carrying Wayward. Even when we need a break, we can't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. <laughs> Drew, talk to me. We've reached the end of a season that I really came into cold. Like, I didn't fall in love with it. I was hoping that our first post-Kripke era season would, like, do something special and draw me in. And I really had a slow start. Suddenly, like, in these last four or five episodes, like complete 180 it retroactively made everything before it feel good again and dragged me right into an amazingly like just I have no words for how much it sucked me in and how much I'm enjoying this season and how much I cannot wait for season seven I I hope this means season seven will start off a little little bit not more of a bang per se but I'll be more like drawn to it because I kind of know where we're going because of like, you know, the magic of pre-recording and stuff. The the good thing here is that you're going to have a lot of time between the moment that we're recording this episode and the moment that we're going to be recording the recap. And I really do think that it would be interesting for you to go back and watch at least like the first third of the season, even if it's just with something, you know, something that you have in the background, because I, I really do think that the reveals that happen in The Man Who Would Be King, I agree with you. I think it really changes the rest of the season. And I think it would be really cool for you to go back and look at that, especially through our usual theme for the recaps, which is family. I'm really intrigued to kind of see cast moments, Crowley moments, with the lens of knowing what I know now, and also kind of seeing soulless Sam through the eyes of someone who understands what he is now. Exactly. So he won't feel like weird Sam. He'll just feel like... Like, soulless Sam. So before we get to the recap, how about we get to the recap? Yes. <laughs> Season recap. Episode oh, I recap. Okay. I see what you did there, yes. Count me down. <laughs> Three, two, one, recap. We officially have Sam, like, just freaking out and running away, and the cops are chasing him, he has no idea what's happening. And then we find out he's lost his memory because... Cass, in an attempt to hinder Dean, but not hurt Dean because he loves Dean too much, he breaks down the wall that death put in Sam's head because who didn't predict that? Even before you made it very obvious it was going to happen, I predict we all knew it was going to happen. And then we find out this whole thing with Sam's actually happening in his head, so he's dealing with his own internal trauma, both his soulless self and the part that 
the the nightmares of hell and himself and he has to kill himself and it's really weird but it's all in his head uh and this whole time bobby and dean have to go deal with Cass, and Cass gets betrayed and then finds out Raphael betrayed him so he kills Raphael, and then he d- crowley redouble crosses him after he double crosses crowley and Raphael's back and she's a woman for some reason and i feel like there's something to discuss there but we'll get into that later and then the whole thing backfires because crowley was air quotes tricked by uh, Cass, bullshit. He was in on this, I'm calling it now. Cass now has all the souls of purgatory and is the new god and is like super weird about the whole thing. But Sam does eventually come to his senses and get back and stabs Cass. Doesn't work because Cass is a god, not an angel anymore. Cass goes off to be the new god and the three of them, Bobby, Dean, and Sam are kind of left like, uh, what we do? Time. You say that he's being really weird about being the new god, but I kind of wonder what being not weird about it would look like. <laughs> in that he's not being the cast we know anymore. I'm being facetious. Uh, yes, but I think during our live watch of this episode, the way I described it was like, on a scale of like, angel cast to like, more humane cast, he was starting to inch closer and closer and closer towards like, being more human-like and getting some more human tendencies and like, making jokes and being comfortable. And now he's like, fully gone back the other way, like so far out of it, that he's like, the weird kind of like, robotic businessy version of an angel we're used to he's gone even further past that i really want to start this long game with some quick information about this episode because i really do think it helps to put some things in context here so first off the episode was written by eric kripke which i think makes a lot of sense because of the you know it's the first time since season five that we get a sense that like sam is the main character again And the second thing that I'd like to note is that this episode aired on the same night as 621 Let It Bleed, so it was a double feature. Now, that being said, it makes a lot more sense now why The Road So Far references the season 5 finale again. It makes a lot more of a clear connection. Like, a lot of the beats in this episode you've touched on in the recap, so we're just going to go over, like, the really, the main ones so that we can dive deep into our theme conversation like the first thing to mention is that ellie dies and she makes it pretty clear that Cass is the one responsible for her wounds and so like Cass is the one responsible for her death basically we've only ever seen Cass like exercise a demon effectively like yes i think this kills the human at the same time from the looks of his powers but like this is his first outright like i murdered somebody for my own reasons actually he also kills like ember benson It doesn't feel like a murder as much as it feels like putting her out of her misery. Rewatch that and tell me it it looks like that. Because you realize immediately that like, oh, it's because he doesn't want to be found out. Oh, shit. I didn't think about that. (gasps) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing. Like this this season, like you need to go back and rewatch it. Like (laughs) you made that very clear. I think this is the perfect example of that. Holy crap. I didn't even think of that. Cass breaks down the wall that death had put up in Sam's mind and Sam now remembers hell. And I think it's pretty clear that we're going to be looking at a lot of the fallout of that in season seven. I like how they kind of like at least made it like clear that was a thing that was happening this like at the end of this episode, even though it was only like one quick like flashbacky thing. Of him burning in hell, but like it's clear, like, oh, this is a thing that will be weighing on him for probably the whole next season and be our big trauma point. He also kills Balthazar and Raphael. 
It's a bloodbath, this episode, really. Like, it's a big reset. Many, many deaths. Many, many deaths. Basically, all of the characters that they introduced in this season are gone. <laughs> well, I think I said it too. It's I think at this point, we are out of angels. The only angel we have had on camera with a name that is still standing is Cass. And then finally, Cass opens the door to Purgatory and he takes in all of the souls that were in there. I'm sure you can imagine that can't be really good for his health. No, I, I'm getting a weird, like, drug metaphor. I think we kind of had a similar one we talked about, like, the blood. Where, like, it changes like, with Sam and the demon blood. Like, it changes you so much. It's put you in this, like, heightened state. I think there'll be more to talk about as we see Cass, I hope, evolve over the next season. Just to see him be more than just, like, a, I'm almighty. Fuck y'all. And finally, the episode ends with Cass telling Dean that he has to, and I quote, bow down and profess your love onto me, your Lord, or I shall destroy you. Yeah, something that Cass would never say to Dean. We're going to talk about that. Our theme this week is turmoil, which is a state of great disturbance, confusion, or uncertainty. This hasn't happened so far, but believe it or not, this is a word with unknown origins. Mm -hmm. I know. <laughs> I did read that it could be from the French uh, trimouille, which is basically an extinct word also, like it no longer exists in the French language today anyway. But it does share roots with trembling. Think about agitation, uncertainty, like involuntary movement and whatnot. So I think the last time that that happened, it was for vampire where like, it just sort of like appeared in a bunch of different languages all at once. Mysterious. Mysterious. So same thing for turmoil. So let's have a look at the relationship between like our characters and turmoil this week. We clearly have some turmoil here today. Sam is literally stuck in a mental dreamscape and has not just to face himself but to kill and absorb himself, specifically his soulless self and what I'm calling his cage self. And like on top of this is not only faced with that, but his own struggle of loss of memory, which he then has to relive in this dream state sort of acts as him facing himself on top of physically overcoming those parts of himself. Like he's really put through like every version of the ringer to deal with this. All of this in order to reintegrate to only have to deal with them now instead of just in a physical dream space, but mentally in his own head as he exists as one whole complete person. Like, the description of turmoil, I think, is very apparent here. If we can dive in a little bit more here, because I, I really think that this is the main event for this episode, or at least I imagine that this was, like, Kripke's favorite part to write, at the very least, right? So much of this episode is specifically dedicated to Sam trying to integrate like these different versions of himself. And I'm going to keep some more critical thoughts for critical time. So for now, let's just like focus on the narrative of that. Uh, because you had predicted at one point that Sam would have to like integrate different fragments of himself. And I just, I remember when you said it, I was like, oh, wow, like that's amazing. Because like <laughs> one, you got it right. And two, I think that you put it really eloquently. I was like, that's, that's really awesome. And, and that's what he ends up doing here, both with Sola Sam and with like Sam who remembers hell. And in order to integrate these fragments, he has to kill them, 
which I think that one of our patrons said best. I think it was Meryl who said that, that it was basically like the most extreme form of shadow self-integration. And I honestly can't agree more. Another point I also kind of briefly brought up and I want to kind of touch on here really quickly and explain why I think it's important. At the end of the day, if the goal is to integrate all three selves into the complete Sam, why should it matter which of them is the one to succeed in this? And I think it kind of comes down to an argument I made earlier on with the idea that Sola Sam would feel like he'd be lost if he had to like become part of whole Sam again. And I think part of this is the fact that how you handle this integration, how you handle dealing with these things, affects the final outcome. So Sola Sam going into this with a thought process of like, I need to destroy these things because I need to be the only one left. Versus memory loss Sam, who wants to reintegrate everything to make himself whole again, while the end goal is the same of bringing it all together, it's how they choose to handle it. So I really think in that a sense of dealing with your shadow self and even the like, like I said, there was a weird moment too where like uh, Sam who remembers was like, oh, here's a gun. Like, don't shoot me. Take this knife instead. And I was like, well, what's the difference? You're going to get killed anyways. And it's the fact that it makes it so much more personal. The fact that you are accepting it on their terms. You are, yes, in the metaphor, you are killing them to integrate with them. But you are not doing it against their will. You're doing it with them almost. Which is really weird, but it makes so much sense to me. I hate the fact that he has to kill his past selves in order to integrate them. And I'm going to talk about that in critical time. I honestly just saw it as like, it's your current self that has to make peace with your past selves. Like as simple as that, right? Like maybe I I should be scratching at this more, but it's just like the version of Sam that he is today, which is like, I don't know. I don't know how you want to call him, but like Sam Sam. Sam. (laughs) Right. Sam Sam is the one who has to integrate Sola Sam and Sam who remembers hell. And that's kind of why I sort of assumed that it had to go that way. I like the simpler version of it because I think it does away with some of the weird, like, tangential loose ends I've created for myself. Keep it simple in this case, I think. (laughs) It's probably the way to go. Because the thing is, like, I remember in therapy when I was working on coping mechanisms specifically for anxiety. And my therapist told me about, like, imagining my anxiety as somebody sitting in the passenger seat of my car, like, while I'm driving. And I think that the goal here was to visualize two different things. Like one, the fact that I was the one driving and in control and the fact that maybe my anxiety was trying to tell me something and that it's okay to like stop and listen. But like, again, at the end of the day, I'm in control. And so is Sam Sam. He's the one in control. He's the one driving the car. Sola Sam and Sam who remembers hell are passengers in this car, but he's the one in control. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say here is that my therapist's advice was not to murder my anxiety, but like to listen to it, right? I think that is symbolic of Sam's inability to reckon with himself properly. And I think like with proper therapy, he could have in this dream world learned to get along with them and they could have coexisted and not need to be murder fused. Patent pending. <laughs> but I do want to zoom out just a little bit from all this. Because I, it truly feels like Sam has been emotional turmoil. Like, this episode, I feel like, is designed to portray him finally taking steps 
not to fixing, because I think fixing would involve not murdering yourself, but like to understanding that there is something to fix. I really appreciate you bringing this up because to me, like I see this very differently and I think I'm very, very affected by the fact that it's a Kripke episode. And so I see it in a very negative light because I'm concerned that like Sam's like that turmoil that you're talking about is made worse by the fact that he has to murder himself twice over in order to become quote unquote whole again. And I, I truly see it as like, the most toxic possible interpretation of psychoanalysis where you're like, you have to kill your past selves, you know, like it's very like Freudian in like the worst kind of way, in my opinion. And, <laughs> and again, maybe this is too pessimistic of you on this episode. So I do appreciate you bringing that up um, like a more optimistic outlook on, on, on the narrative here. So thank you for that. I'm glad I, I'm glad I could share that with you. I, I think your point is also incredibly valid, and I think, given the context of the show, it could easily go both ways. And I, I, I'm hopeful. I think. I love that. I love that for you. <laughs> Honestly, like that makes me really happy. <laughs> I feel like the line "I love that for you" is very much your way of saying I love that you're optimistic. You're wrong, <laughs> but I love that you're optimistic, and that's fine. That is fine. I think in this case, like, there's no right or wrong here, right? Like, I think that both our views can totally coexist for this episode, like, very happily, because, like, we don't, you know, I don't think that there's a really right or wrong answer in this particular case anyway. And I think that they're, like, two sides of the same coin, right? Like, knowing who wrote it, you can make some assumptions, but also, like, looking at it kind of ignoring the author. And looking at the season as a whole, knowing there were multiple hands in the pie. I, I have trouble doing that. <laughs> well, speaking of Pi, Dean is just meant to suffer this week. He's someone he truly cared for. Like, literally the first person outside of family, adopted or otherwise, in a long time that he has trusted, cared for, and loved, is not only betraying his trust, but actively working against him now? Dean has to now suffer through this without his brother, who has been his only kind of like other pillar besides Cass. And even when Sam was the problem, he more or less had Cass the whole way through in the bigger moments. Like Their relationship began as a support system when like Cass didn't know what to do with like the end of the world and Sam uh, Dean didn't know what to do with Sam. And even when Sam was soulless, he had Cass by his side. And like... Yes, there was some distance we kind of compared to long-distance relationship, but, like, at the end of the day when he needed Cass, Cass was there. And now he has no one. His normal move is to turn to Cass, and Cass is the problem. I think that there's, like, two components to Dean's turmoil this week. And the first is that, like, Sam's in a coma, right? Like, we know we know that that would cause a lot of, of pain uh, to Dean. And the second is Cass in, in multiple ways. Because, again, Cass like betrayed him and he's now basically like actively working against him and he's he's the one who puts Sam in a coma so really like like you said Cass is the main reason behind Dean's issues this week up until now there was disagreement but now there's actual like adversary Exactly. And that's the thing. Like, Dean is still kind of reeling from the last few episodes, right? Like, he's still mad about finding out about Cass's betrayal in The Man Who Would Be King. He's still mad that Cass refused to listen to him, both in The Man Who Would Be King and in Let It Bleed. 
And now he's also mad about Cass torturing Ellie and putting Sam in a coma. If Cass wasn't around right now, like, Dean's life would be so much more peaceful. Like, Cass, like you said, Cass is the problem. It's amazing how it snowballed to this, because I think for so long, even I was kind of feigning the Dean role in like, no, it can't be Cass. Cass can't be the problem. Cass can't be the drama. And yet, and yet. (laughs) And that's the thing, like, it comes back to what you were saying, that like part of that turmoil that Dean is feeling has to do with the fact that he can't turn to Cass for help right now. But over the past few years, like he's really learned to lean on him in ways that we haven't seen him lean on anyone before, really, even Sam, I would argue, even Sam. And like now that he would need that support, he doesn't like, wait, no, not only does he not have it, but Cass is the reason that he needs that help. I found it really interesting to look back at this season, let alone this episode, and compare bloodthirsty demon blood Sam to soulful, full of power casts. And like, oh, I can kind of see the similarities, but like, I think there is a lot of differences. And the biggest one is how Dean responds to the two of them. In in that idea, like we've been talking about Dean and Cass's like current relationship status as a breakup. And I think that this really reinforces it, you know, because like when you break up with someone that you've been with for a while, like the one person that you would usually go to with your problems isn't there to listen. And like in some cases, and definitely in this case, like they're the cause of the hurts that you're feeling. We're seeing Dean reaching a limit, like truly the way he approaches Cass, he's lowering his defenses. He's conversational it feels so different when he was confronting Sam in a very similar scenario. It was a lot more like combative and like, I need to stop you with Cass. It's vulnerable and pleading and he's truly shaken and just wants his cast back. Speaking of Cass, our little problem of the week. He, so many words come to mind, and I hate that devilish is one of them. I'm still convinced that Crowley's thing with Raph was a double-double cross. We'll get that later. I'll put that aside for now, because I'm just berating that one. No, no, no. I'm going to ask you for more of that, because there's no opportunity to talk about it later. So you need to tell me about that now. I want to know what you mean. I think Cass knew from the beginning that getting all the souls would not necessarily be enough to stop Raphael, because whether... I'm going to say they because they've now gender swapped and I'm not sure at what point. So they, um, at what point they were aware of the plan, what was going on, whether or not they might find something out behind Cass's back, whether through Crowley or Raphael or the brothers or who knows what. So I think he intended the entire time to, like, whether it was intentional, the breakup with Crowley to piss off Crowley and kind of throw him into Raphael's arms or if that part was even planned, uh, my my instinct says no, it wasn't. In the hopes that Crowley would go, I guess Crowley would have to know, because then the whole idea of giving Crowley the fake blood, because I'm sorry, when you are the king of hell and your entire shtick is making deals, you think you'd be better at checking the fucking small print, like, is this the right blood you are giving me? Listen, listen. If we're again thinking of these relationships as romantic relationships, right? 
one of the reasons why Cass was so... I hate to say this, but one of the reasons why he was so easily able to betray Dean is because Dean trusted him, right? Because of the nature of their relationship. And so if we think about Cass and Crowley in a similar relationship at the moment, then... I'm sorry. Are you fucking implying that potentially Cass fully played Crowley and believed that Crowley would trust him enough based on the relationship to not check the nitty gritty details? Yes. Madame, you have just ripped my heart out and stepped on it? I'm sorry. (laughs) My hat's off to Cass in his insane and well-thought-out devilish, devious, evil plottery. We'll see for sure, right? That'll be elucidated for us later, but, like, we'll see if that was planned or not. I need my season seven Crowley episode. I need to know. (laughs) All that aside, Cass has found himself in a pretty tumultuous situation. He believes he's found his only way forward, and it has clearly led him astray but he doesn't see it anymore. He truly believes he is convinced that this was right. And I think he himself is convinced that there is no greed in doing this, despite the fact that everyone else sees it and the clear side effects of this power are this literal godlike power trip that he's now on. I, I mean, I don't, disagree per se that like green might have been in part at least like a side effect from the power that he received by getting those souls but like listen Cass has gone through deceit betrayal hubris torture and murder and I'm only talking about the last two episodes (laughs) greed's not too far behind maybe maybe the power of the souls that he's holding like is accentuating existing issues. But I think that's as far as I'm going to go in terms of like absolving Cass of responsibility here because like he's been making his bed all season. I'm not going to stand here and say that he doesn't have to lie in it. Yeah, I think looking at Cass through the lens of turmoil reveals that Cass has never really had to deal with something like this, at least not like he's had to until now. Like, prior to this, all of his biggest troubles were not his alone, per se. They were always something that he could share with somebody. You know, he really made this war of his, his problem. I think that for Cass, the biggest issue for him, like, what troubles him the most, is the sunk cost fallacy, which is basically when you're thinking like I've I've invested so much in this I can't turn back now which is what we've heard Cass saying for the last 3 episodes now like I can't turn back I have to do this like he says a few variations of this specifically to Dean actually and I think for me what really cements it is when he tells Dean at the end of this episode he goes you doubted me fought against me but I was right all along like to him, it's more important to show Dean that he was right than than anything else. Like, that is so alarming to me. Yeah, that is, like, problematic AF. Oh, yeah, for sure. Again, I want to drag it back one last time to the comparison that I keep making, and I'm assuming other people have made, between blood-chugging Sam and soul-chugging Cass. I see it as Sam is doing this 
despite his feelings. In order to save the world, he has to do this, even though he knows it's wrong. Cass wants to do it as he feels it's his duty. And I think there's a very subtle difference there in that Sam knows he's becoming what he hates. Cass is not. Okay, hold on. Because I think that there's something really important here. And it's in how the narrative treats the characters. Because for Sam, like, he does bad things throughout season four. And, like, the ultimate thing that he does is to kill Lilith. And the second he does that, he realizes that he was in the wrong, like, all along. And the narrative makes it really clear for him, right? And immediately, it's immediate, which is really important here. But for Cass, like he's also doing bad things throughout the season. And the ultimate thing that he does is to open purgatory and like swallows all of the souls that are in there. But the difference here is that his hubris pays off immediately. Like he's able to chase Crowley away. He kills Raphael and he gets to gloat to Dean that he was right. And so I think that like in a very meta way, like the turmoil that Cass is creating in Dean and in the rest of the characters, he's also creating in the viewer because we know that this isn't going to end well. Like this is 100% an Icarus situation and Cass is flying way too close to the sun right now. No, I, I think that's that's part of it too for me is the fact that like while there's so much similar between the Sam arc and this current Cass arc, the you're right. It's the immediately like, oh no, I fucked up. I was the bad guy the whole time. Cass is like, I'm God now. Clearly I did everything right and you're all wrong. Yep, absolutely. Ah. So I, I mean, I'm going to ask for um, the sake of asking, but like we've already kind of touched on this. Who wrote and directed this episode? This was written by Eric Kripke, directed by Robert Singer, which is the uh, dynamic duo, if you ask me. <laughs> and it originally aired on May 20th, 2011. Like I said, just after 621, Let It Bleed. This is the last episode Kripke writes. This is absolutely the last episode that Eric Kripke writes for Supernatural. He hadn't written one since season five. And this is the very last one that he's personally involved with. Yeah. What's in the Hunter's Journal this week? It was snowing that day. Everyone in town was outside enjoying the first snow of the year. It was still too warm for it to last more than a few seconds upon landing on anything. But the kids were running around trying to catch them on their tongue, and the adults just stood around with warm drinks in hand, smiling at one another. It was a perfect day, becoming a perfect evening even. Then it appeared. First, a loud sound like horns from every direction... It knocked a lot of us down to our knees. The children all began to scream and run, looking for familiar people to hide behind. Then the sky lit up like the sun had been dragged from where it begun to set right back up to its fullest height in the sky. I couldn't tell you how long until any of us were able to stand or see or hear again. It could have been hours if it was even seconds. It took a moment before someone saw it and began pointing, and then a few more moments for others to notice them and follow their gaze to whatever had caught their attention. Stood at the end of the street, as if it had just strolled into town, was a figure of a person is the best way I can describe it. It came towards us slowly, its legs not moving, its feet just a few centimeters above the ground. 
It wasn't the direct source of the light, but it did seem to glow a whitish light that rippled around it as its head moved slightly, looking at each of us one by one. It stopped. And by this time, we had all seemingly moved in to get a closer look, though I don't recall moving an inch at all. It allowed its feet to meet the ground, and the sound had become like background noise to that point that I almost didn't notice when it had stopped. And now it was just silence until it opened its mouth and said, Be not afraid. Now, with the wrap-up of a season, I'm sure there's a lot to talk about, but I want to know what your thoughts are. I need to talk about how toxic I think it is to represent shadow self-integration through murder. And again, like, you know, I've been very honest about this. This is a Kripke episode. And so, and we all know how I feel about Eric Kripke. So maybe I'm, I'm biased in my assessment. Also not surprised, you know, like I, I, I guess I just want to unpack it a little bit and maybe offer like alternatives that don't actually involve like figuratively murdering parts of ourselves when we're trying to, to like integrate other fragments of who we are. Because, because listen, like realistically, when we try to shove things down, they come back up, right? Like Dean is the poster child for that. So, you know, all we need to do is watch a few episodes of Supernatural to realize how badly that works out for us. So if we ignore like our past selves, like think, for example, about like our inner child, our inner teen, or like the person we were a few years ago that maybe we're not super proud of, you know, like when we ignore these versions of us, or when we try to shove them away, like they always come back kicking and screaming in one way or another. Like, for example, like I know that if I don't give my inner child new fun activities every once in a while, like I tend to overshop. And if I don't remember to love myself in relationships, then my 24 year old self comes back and she yells, she's not very nice. So like I, I know that in this episode, the murdering of the past selves is for dramatic effect. Like I know that. The reality is that somebody in Sam's position will always have to nurture his hell-surviving self. Like, just because he stabbed him in a dream doesn't mean that he now knows how to live well with this version of him. There's, there's obviously going to need to be a learning curve, and so maybe we're going to see some of that in Season 7. I think that that would be a healthy thing for us to look at. It's honestly something I am looking forward to as much as, one, completely agree with you. Uh, like, I, again, you're right. It's it's so much for the dramatic effect. But the end result, the thing we're going to now deal with next season, I'm very intrigued to see this new Sam who has all of the memories of both being soulless Sam and the... I'm going to say, like, with very big asterisks here, the benefits that come with that, the things he could learn from, like, his more serious, gritty time to then nurturing, like you said, that part of himself that suffered for so long. Like, I'm looking forward to seeing Sam deal with that however they choose to do it. Will they do it well? I doubt it, but I can hope. This week, we have a message from Ruby. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Mary and I will be answering the question, 
what do you do to quiet your mind? For our Roadhouse supporters, Honor and Paula talk. Stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Hey, this is Ruby. So I was listening to slash re-watching the season one finale of Devil's Trap. Um, and that episode is just so good and so interesting. Um, and one thing that always catches me off guard in that episode is the car crash at the end, um, which one is filmed beautifully with, uh, bad moon rising in the background. I don't know if that's what it is on Netflix, but that's what it is when it was originally airing. Um, to the point where I remember that scene every time I hear that song. Uh, but I just, re-watching, I just realized one of the reasons why the car crash catches me off guard in the end every time. Because most of the time when we see car crashes on TV, the camera is set a certain way. It's either looking at the driver from the passenger seat or looking at the passenger from the driver's seat. Um, it's always a side camera view, whereas in this episode, the car crash happens when the camera is facing into the windshield where you can see all of them, and it makes it so much more jarring because it doesn't telegraph that it's coming. It just comes out of nowhere. Um, and someone who is an absolute nerd for camera work, I I found myself really loving that detail and the way they make it that much more uh, startling. So I figured I would share. Maybe one of you also likes camera work and would find that cool. Uh, yeah, bye. Ruby, thank you for this voicemail. And to answer the first thing I need to answer, yes, I'm a nerd for camera work. I was a film student. And I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's the fact that it's not filmed with some of those cliched camera angles you expect from a car crash that I recall being so caught off guard by it. Also, I had to look it up. You're right. The Bad Moon Rising is not the song used in the uh, Netflix version. I have two songs listed here. I'm not sure which one is the one they use. I know the song Bad Moon Rising very well, and I'm now picturing a car crash at night with the three of them in it to that song, and it is just, it amplifies the scene. It's something the show does very seldom, I find, and I feel like we have brought it up on the show, you and I, Mary, a few times, when, like, they do something a little bit interesting with camera work, where it's just, like, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's a little more noticeable, but there are moments where they like use the fact that they understand that this is a show full of cliches. The horror genre, the monster of the week genre does have its staples. So when they can use that to their advantage to make these scenes a little more jarring or special or different or subvert expectations, it's something they can do very well. So thank you for sharing that and making me realize again just I need to like rewatch season one with all the right music at some point honestly the first thing that came to my mind Ruby when you were talking about Bad Moon Rising is the fact that I've never actually seen that scene 
with that soundtrack and how cheated I feel out of that. <laughs> because, yeah, the only way to, to be able to, to have seen it that way was either to have watched it on the CW while it was airing or to have the DVDs. And I don't, I don't have that, right? Like, I, I've seen them, but I bought the seasons on Apple TV and it's basically the same thing as, like, the streaming version. So I've never actually seen it with Bad Moon Rising, uh, which I is a song that I love personally and that plays in another episode of Supernatural in season seven, episode 16, Out With The Old. So we'll see it next season. Yeah, honestly, thank you so much for 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 noticing that because I don't think that's something that I would have noticed in terms of camera angle and like how car crashes are usually filmed. I don't I don't think that this is something that I would have noticed. But the one thing that I'll say is that like having having lived through some kind of I I mean or having witnessed, I should say, like a car crash about a year or so ago at this point, like I think that you're completely right when you say how, when you describe how jarring this conversation is making me appreciate just how jarring that scene really is and, and, and therefore how truthful to reality it is, right? Like how it's there, they literally get hit by a truck. Like the expression, it hit me like a truck. This is exactly what's going on. And I just, I really, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much for pointing that out, Ruby. So tell me about your reflection and call to action. I have reflected that I need to listen to myself more. I need to look at my inner self, the parts of me, the the other Drews in there, and listen and understand and not murder my trauma, but instead accept those parts of me and listen to myself and think about my own well my own well-being and what it means to have those parts of me. Very nebulous call to action this week for myself, but I think it is just a starting step on a path of personal development, growth, and healing that I overdo for. I mean, isn't that the case for everybody? (laughs) Like, (laughs) very relatable. Anyway, it's certainly definitely relatable for me because that's also very, very close and actually... It is basically my personal reflection and it's something that I've been reflecting on for the past few months, frankly, like particularly I think since January, but like it's to listen to the turmoil that I'm in, like to pay attention to how my body is feeling and the emotions that I'm carrying with me to basically do the opposite of murdering parts of myself, (laughs) to allow them to breathe really and to give them what they need. So feeling my feelings, basically. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Marie Vigou and myself, Drew Schulman. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our Bunker supporters, Katira, L, and Jeremiah Thomas. This week, we'd like to thank Ruby for its message. You can find the links to all our social media and our merch store at carryingwayward.com. And don't forget to leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to us. If you like Carrying Wayward and you'd like to support us in our project to go through all 15 seasons of Supernatural, you can support us through Coffee or Patreon, and you can find those links at carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. 
I mean, to be entirely honest, that is literally my definition of like anxiety and nightmares, but like, <laughs> sure, whatever works. <laughs> I love that I immediately like hit the chaos button. Like what's, what's the thing I can do that would freak Mary out the most? Like I might as well say like, I'm gonna go juggle knives and babies. <laughs> I think it's because for me, like, if it's dark outside, like, I'm good at, I, I like to be inside my house behind locked doors, you know? 